Good morning, everybody. Okay, does everyone have a book? We, we have books here, right? Right. Yeah. You want to... Uh, here, I'll do it. It's okay. Does someone else need? Yeah, here. Just raise your hand if you need one. That's a gift from Christ Church to you, so... Not to mention from me, but that's... <laughs> Not really, I'm just kidding. Okay, um, today, uh, I think chapter three is where we're at. Returning to God as Spirit, it starts on page 14. It goes all the way to uh, 35. Uh, that's what we want to focus on, except, and I have my agenda. These are the things that I think we could talk about, but I also want to give you the opportunity at this point in the course. Uh, you've been reading, uh, right? No oral quizzes, no tests, but I'm hoping that you're reading. And if you have any things that you would like to talk about right now, that'd be great. We can have a few minutes or as long as you want to bring up issues, questions, things that you didn't understand, things that you want to challenge, uh, things that you hated. That won't happen, but <laughs> it might. But anything that you would like to talk about at this point, uh, we will do it. Um, I'll say the prayer this morning for us, and then you will ponder and think. If you have any questions, just bring them up. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the rain that cleansed everything last night and brought a refreshing quality to the air. And we remember in the scriptures uh, that you used that metaphor very many times in the Old Testament in particular of the reign of the Holy Spirit or pouring out your Holy Spirit or how your spirit will come down upon us as we are dry and parched and give to us uh, the water of life and bring us back to life. And that's what we ask for today, that your spirit would be our teacher uh, and beyond that, that the spirit would help us to accept and you know, embrace and allow you to integrate into our lives uh, the amazing things that you want to do in us uh, as God, as spirit. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, questions, comments, smart remarks. Yes, sir. And do we have another? Oh, yes, we do. Done. How the, the framework of the book, the, the tradition, is so intensely, heavily masculine in all its framework, reference, father, son, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how, how do you, does, it, it seems to me that's a, a, a time-based warp um, of expression, but how, how do you work with that in your own life where I'm sure you don't see that kind of total masculine? Yeah, that's a great question. You mean like the theological language that's used in the Bible? Okay, um, find John 4.24. Let's just start right there. And this will be, this is Jesus speaking. Great question. Absolutely great. One of, the, one of the real percolating, continuing perennial issues of great concern 
particularly the one, to one half of the human race, which would be what? The females. The females. <laughs> I mean, the guys, they never had a problem with this, but uh, the females did, and, and rightly so in some ways, once we understand this. <clears throat> this would be a great topic just for a whole class. Okay, John, Jesus said what? God is? What does that mean when, when he says God is Spirit? What's implied in that? <clears throat> I, that's what a spirit is. It's an entity that has no body. Or incorporeal is the fancy Latin-based incorporeal. We are corporeal-based creatures. What's corporal punishment? Body, punch, body punishment. Incorporeal means that you don't have a body. Okay, God does not have a body. Are there any other entities that do not have bodies? Angels. Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all spirits, ministering spirits, sent to help those who are heirs of salvation? So angels are, in that sense, like God. They have no bodies. They can somehow take some sort of form. They have the supernatural ability to appear to us in some form of form. It's like a hologram or some sort of supernatural manifestation, but they actually don't have corporeal flesh. Neither does God. Okay, so if God doesn't have a body, then that would mean what? God does not have gender. Uh, that would also mean God doesn't have uh, ethnicity or skin color, because that's the only way we can determine. By the way, I took a survey the other day, and they asked, uh, what race are you? And uh, I, uh, I wrote in, uh, they had a little fill-in box, and they said, it was like uh, white, black, blah, 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 Asian, you know, whatever. Uh, and then they said other, so I checked other. And then they said, <laughs> I put human. And then I said, now, if you want to know what my skin color is, which is the only way that you can make any of these other designations, it's white. But I don't consider those to be races, they're ethnicities. Your skin color is your ethnicity. So God doesn't have ethnicity. God doesn't have gender. So now when we get to this radical passage, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 26, off the top of my head, let's see if my brain's still working. Paul says, and this is a radical truth for the first century church, which we still haven't fully embraced. In Christ, is I got the right verse? In Christ, what? There is no, 28. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. So Jew and Gentile is what kind of a category? Uh, not really. No. Because there were a lot of Jews that were Christians. Ethnicity. So in Christ, in other words, let's modernize this. Because who uses the term in the modern world now, Gentile? What's a Gentile? I mean, the funniest thing I ever heard was some guy said, what's a Gentile? I said, that's, a, that's an Italian Christian, right? <laughs> Gentile? That was just a Jewish way of talking about everybody else in the world that's not Jewish. Well, you can see that the only way you would want to use those kinds of categories is if you were Jewish. Because I mean, if you're not Jewish, it doesn't make any sense, really, to talk like that. So let's delete all that stuff just to make sense to the modern world. In Christ, there is no what? Ethnicity. 
ethnicity doesn't count anymore. It doesn't matter. In Christ, there is no slave or free. Well, we don't have a lot of slaves running around anymore, although there's a poster down there that talks about, I can see it right from here, sexual slavery. Yes, there are slaves today, but it's all hidden and it's not open like it used to be. Okay, so when you use the terms uh, um, slave or free, what, what, what are those categories? There's social categories. There's status class, uh, social status, sociological designations. So if I was going to translate this for the modern world, I would say in Christ there is no social categories any longer. They, don't, they exist, but in Christ they don't. They don't matter. And in Christ there is no male or female. And that's a gender issue. So I would translate it, uh, in Christ there is no gender. So really, if you, if you take the time to drill into it, you find out, no, the apostles were not sexist. In fact, they were pushing the envelope to the a highest level. They were working with a, a, a culture. I mean, you can only take people so far. I mean, that's ex extraordinarily a, radical. I mean, I can remember reading in a Greek court case, Apollodorus gives a testimony in a Greek court case. And he says, <clears throat> now this is a quote, and I didn't say this, and I don't agree with it, so don't start throwing stones up here. He says, when asked by the judge what his opinion of women or whatever is, he says, we have our... Uh, uh, we have our um, courtesans to escort us and accompany us to parties. We have our concubines to satisfy our sexual desires. And we have our wives to bear our children and keep our homes. Said with, with not one whit of self-consciousness of like, this is outrageous. I mean, that's just the way it was in Greek culture. How do you like that, women? What? Not much. Not much. Yes. So, is that right? A lot of cultures. Sure. Isn't that why the Bible was written toward men? Um, written toward men. Ah. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, sort of. And I, I mean, I don't want to deprecate this because, I mean, certainly it does seem that way on the surface. Yet, you start out at the book of Genesis. I mean, the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, I don't know what the verse is, like 24 or something like that. And God, he, God says, and God made them in God's image. In the image of God made he them. Male and female, he made them. So right at the very beginning of the Bible, you get this notion that what? The image of God is found where? In both, in male and female. And in fact, you need both to get the full-blown image of God. So, you know, yes, there are this variegated stuff in here. And then, of course, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that I want to call descriptive rather than prescriptive, which means that it describes what people believed and did, but it's not saying what God really thought about it. Right? It's not prescribing these attitudes. So if you are sexist, yes, I will agree that you can go into the Bible and find many descriptive passages and then construct these kind of uh, male hegemony uh, positions. But if you read it holistically, and especially, you know, I think most of you have read the Bible long enough to know that, you know, God is, and this is probably what you're trying to say, Susan, too, that, you know, God has to start somewhere. So he's evolving the human race over time to get 
to this apex. We can't get here immediately. And that's true on many, many issues, not just the gender issue. It's true on, um, you know, like, the slavery issue. I mean, slavery was allowed in the Older Testament. Uh, It was circumscribed. It could only last seven years, and then they were supposed to offer the slave freedom. What would have happened in America if if the people that said slavery was biblical would have followed that? They just deleted that verse. The Bible teaches that slavery is okay, but but we're not really going to follow what it says. But they were supposed to release the slaves, at at least give them the opportunity uh, to be free after seven years. If they wanted to stay as an employee, God said, well, take them up to a tree, put their earlobe up, drive a nail through it, and put an earring in in, in them, and then that'll signify that they've chosen to be your employee. Okay, so God mitigated what was really a horrible situation. What's the biggest slavery issue in the Bible that's just terrible? that the Bible makes a huge deal about that shows that God didn't really approve of slavery. Uh, what? Uh, well, yes, eventually sin, but like historically. Uh, Egypt. God renders judgment on Egypt for what they did to the Jewish people. So this shows that God never wanted slavery to be, but it was. That's the way people were. So then God mitigates it and works with the Jewish people. And then he finally, in Christ, comes to this place and says, hey, what? Guess what? That, that doesn't exist anymore as a category. Yes? Well, seriously, if God had come to them as female, would the men have listened? I, you know, that's a great question. And here's the twisty. I mean, I'm not trying to challenge anything that you're saying. But I'm just thinking about stuff like, well, what do you do with Ashtaroth? the female de- deity that the Canaanites interacted. The, the men loved her. But that's for I mean, One of the reasons they loved her is because they could go and have sex at the shrines exactly. with, the, with the priestesses. So they didn't have any problems visualizing to a certain extent that God could some, or the goddesses could come to us. But this is so different and so contrary to that. Would they have listened to what <clears throat> this is saying? Okay, now this is an argument. Let's, let's take it into the Jesus realm. This is an argument that some people have used, like, well, okay, but if, if, if Jesus says women are equal with men, how come he chose 12 men to be his apostles? And, uh, and so the argument for the people that want gender equality is it, they go to Jesus' comment to the disciples when he says to them, I have many things to tell you, but you can't handle them now. In other words, yes, they were stuck in time place, and they needed an illumination from the Holy Spirit to move them on, but they had not yet had that illumination, so Jesus realized it's futile. So yes, he started with where they're at. But, but, think about Jesus' ministry. What else did he do that was outrageous for his time and place? He taught them to do what the women were doing, caring for the sick, hands on. I think you're on, yes. Yeah, hands-on, um, instead of sitting in the city gate far away or in the temple arguing, he, he taught them to be in the midst okay. of the people All where right. the women only had been. Okay, before. that's good. By, one, by example, he did show them that doing the work of a slave, washing feet yeah. and all that kind of stuff is perfectly fine for a man to do. And? I got an answer for Sue. The uh, man started out testosterone it's much more aggressive and he he was the one that's supposed to kill the animals and eat them and bring them in and all that kind of stuff 
The women weren't as strong, they weren't as aggressive, and so by nature, they are more, their estrogen is much more loving and uh, tender for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so I think that uh, it's testosterone. <laughs> Well, listen, there is, a there is a large measure of truth to that. However, Susan's thing is deeper than that because he, she wants to know, um, what, if you're trying to teach people love, joy, peace, and all this stuff, what, what, you know, your, your thesis is, is that men aren't as amenable to that kind of a posture as women are. So why would he start with men? And the answer is, is because that's, they were the dominant ones in the culture. Okay, so I'll grant that. However, simultaneous to all of this stuff, Jesus is doing what as he walks around with his entourage? Come on, you guys know this. How he's got women with him. Outrageous, unbelievable, can't be. A rabbi would never travel with a cohort of women. Why not? A rabbi wouldn't teach a woman. Why not? They thought. Uh, who saw Barbara Streisand in um, Yentl? That movie illustrates the whole notion of, well, what is this? Why can't I study Torah? Just because I'm a female, I want to. All right, so look at Jesus. Who, does he have any female disciples? But not of the 12, but the females traveled with the 12. Now, I don't know what you invent. I mean, they actually lived together as a traveling cohort. They actually moved together, migrated together as a cohort with the women with them. So how would you imagine it in your imagination? Do you think Jesus walked here at the front of the line, all the 12 men walked right behind him like little ducklings, and then the chicas were back of them? <laughs> Chica is a... Not a pejorative term, it's, it's fun. Uh, yeah. Do you think that's the way it worked out? Or what would you imagine it to be? You got 12 men, Jesus, and a large cohort of women. At least seven are mentioned. They're mentioned in Luke chapter 8. And in fact, those women were funding the enterprise. Do you guys know this? Luke 8, 1 through 4. The women were funding it. So how do you imagine it when they walk into town and it's like, oh, Jesus is coming into uh, Capernaum. How do you imagine it? The men all over here? The women all over here? You think they were all mingled? Talking outrageous. Unbelievable. So, yes, God has been, and, and this, is a, this evolutionary theme applies to many other topics in the Bible. This is the, God's pattern. It's like the difference or the notion of law and grace. When you start out in the Old Testament, you get law. And then God, and Paul says that the law was our schoolmaster or a tutor to lead us, to educate us to the place we, where we could embrace grace. So God didn't start out with grace. God started out with law. God didn't start out at the height. God started out at where humans were and then moved us to where God wanted us to be. And that's why when we study the Bible, we have to ask ourselves the question, yes, this is what it says here, but what does it mean in the holistic context of the Bible? Because you have to study the whole Bible to find out where God is going. And on this topic, where God is going, is to evolve us into the place of understanding, hey, God's not some, uh, you know, like really old, uh, like a Michelangelo, 
uh, deity figure with you know, like massive forearms and testosterone coursing through his chest and you know touching Adam who's ripped just like God. Yeah, that's 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 Michelangelo testosterone. It, but that's a picture, and, I, and there's probably been millions of people that have looked at that and said, "Wow, God's so awesome." But it, I don't. What would you put up there in its place? How are you going to paint a spirit? You could have put a Playboy bunny up there, I guess. That would have got a lot of people to contemplate God, right, Dr. Smith? But that wouldn't have worked out, too. That would have been outrageous. It's okay to show a ripped guy, but not a voluptuous female. So you can see how this problem that humans have of evolving, even Michelangelo, this great genius, puts God in the form of a muscular male. But that's not where God wanted us to stay. God wanted us to evolve to this place God is an incorporeal spirit, everywhere present, all at once, has no skin, no gender, is beyond those categories. And so now what does that mean for us? We should go into that. We should evolve into it. So then, now we have to do what Thomas Aquinas taught us. Okay, so we're done with this. This makes pretty good sense. Do you remember what I told you about Thomas Aquinas one time in reference to speaking about God? He said, there's three ways that you can speak about anything. Does anyone remember this? You can, you can use univocal language. You can use equivocal language. And you can use analogical language. Now, who knows what univocal language is? There's a one-to-one correspondence between the word and the object that you're referring to. Okay, so I don't think we're going to have any epistemological, epistemological problems with me saying this is a cup of water. Agreed? We, it's a one-to-one correspondence. Equivocal is when you use language, and lawyers are uh, really hip to this. What's equivocation? Equivocation is when you say something, but it's misleading, but it's not a blatant lie. Some people said that Bill Clinton was the master equivocator. I, I, I mean, I don't think I, I'm any less equivocator of Bill Clinton, but it was pretty funny when he said, well, it all depends on what you mean. The word is, is, right? It's playing with language in such a way that you wind up with a misleading understanding. Analogical language is when you say, this is something like this. But with the understanding that you are not saying that it is identical. It is not the same. It's just like. So, Thomas Aquinas concludes, we can never talk about God univocally because God is beyond human language and words cannot ever perfectly or sometimes not even really accurately speak about God. So he said, that's out. And we certainly don't want to talk about God in an equivocal sense. We don't want to mislead people when we use language. So he said, that's out. So it winds up that the only way that a human being can ever talk about God is analogically. So when the Bible says that God is our Father, does it mean it in the literal sense that God's a male that has progeny. No. 
God is like a father in the sense that a father is like what? What's a father like in the ideal sense? Loving father, source of life, right? Um, what gets real curious to me, though, is like, let's go to the spirit now, because that's the focus of today. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, the spirit of God is mentioned. Verse 3, pictured how? Anyone remember? The spirit of God was hovering on the waters. Now, this is a uh, picture of the Holy Spirit, sort of like a huge bird sitting on the waters of creation and as a bird would do, bringing life up out of creation. So, sorry, it's sort of a feminine type of uh, picture. <clears throat> uh, so, my point would be to you is, we don't want to get hung up on language that was um, analogically intended, tailored to a particular culture. We've now moved on to understand that these are analogies, so therefore now we have to, as Christians, work in the modern age to communicate to people. So what do, what do we want to do about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? You could call God mother. Parent-child would be, would be the most gender-neutral way of saying it. Oh yeah, God's my parent. Lots of people, and lots of churches and denominations have done this, by the way. This isn't like, you know, anything new. And somebody else was going to say something. Uh, a lot of people were astonished, insanely mad at the book, um, The Shack. Why? Because God, the father gets presented as a, a classic African-American uh, mama, black mama. She's big, she's embracing. She's, uh, Jesus just winds up being like a nondescript Jewish guy. And the Holy Spirit? Uh, female. female Asian. Yeah. <sighs> People went crazy. Uh, why? You think, you think about the, the Holy Spirit, the characteristics of the Holy Spirit as described in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is like a... Well, well, at Jesus' baptism, how does the Holy Spirit get a little pretty dove? I mean, the little morning doves that are out in my little woods next to my house are out there, the most gentle little things. This is not testosterone. This is, uh, you know, pure estrogen experience. Well, the whole fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness. Uh, these are not usually the things that are characterized as male qualities, right? So we could amend our language if we wanted to. We could start thinking of God as a celestial, omnipresent spirit who is like both a male and both a female and in the incarnation as Jesus. Yes, he did incarnate as male, but he did everything he could while he was here on earth to demonstrate that 
this notion of walking around life all the time and categorizing people by their gender is over. We're, we're moving past that. We're moving into the age of the spirit. It doesn't matter what your genitalia is. As long as your heart is right, you can serve with me. Correct? Isn't that what Jesus taught us? So I don't, I don't know if this helps, but... Yeah. Uh, the father son kind of thing, I found myself saying, hmm, that's why I'm in space with that guy. I've got to ask. <laughs> okay, good. And the only reason I didn't go into all this in the book is because, well, first of all, it's already been talked about a lot, but number two, it's highly controversial, and I didn't want to clutter up the book with a lot of controversies. I wanted to get to a certain point that I wanted people to understand. But it's good to no talk about this in, in conjunction with it. So that's, that's really a great question. Yes, sir. Uh, to go back to the hormone business, uh, God, he, didn't, he knew that he couldn't have a man with all testosterone. So as a matter of fact, our adrenals and our testicles produce some female hormone to soften us, and the female gets some masculine hormone from the adrenal gland so that she isn't quite so wussy. If those of you who don't know, Dr. Smith is a physician, so he's... Science grounded and he understands all this. You know what's really funny now that you bring all this up? So I go up to the Cleveland Clinic, get tested again by a hematologist, go through this whole thing. Three exotic tests, change, testing me for everything. So in the end he says, well, <clears throat> your numbers are good now. I don't think you're going to have this problem anymore. So my recommendation to you is that you take a vitamin for pregnant females that has an iron supplement in it. So I am now taking <laughs> vitamins f that a pregnant woman should take, supplemented by iron. And I feel great. Yes, but it, uh, okay, it's double iron, but it says for pregnant females. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, any other questions or topics that you would like to talk about? No? Uh, does anyone remember anything about the persuasions of the Holy Spirit? John 16. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes to do his ministry, that he will persuade people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, it's the persuasions of the Holy Spirit that lead us initially to Jesus. No one becomes a Christian without his persuasions. He persuades us that we need a Savior. And that's how, we, that's how we eventually come. We might not even realize that's happening to us when it's happening. A lot of people, when it was happening to me, uh, I, didn't know, I didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. I had no idea there was a Holy Spirit. I had no understanding of it. But nevertheless, over the course of a year, the Holy Spirit persuaded me eventually that I needed. Yes. 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 And if you wanted to continue that metaphor and and say uh, that God's the gardener, Jesus is the vine, then what would the Holy Spirit be? 
The, the stuff going through the vine. The life coming through the vine. Yes, exactly, right. Right, 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 yeah. So um, you're right. The John 15 does set them up for John 16 because you have to understand when Jesus is teaching them in John 14, 15, 16, these guys are 2,000 years before us. They don't know any of this. This is all new for them. What? God's going to come live inside of us? You're going to come live inside of us? Uh, they, they are baffled. If you read, go back and read John 14, 15, 16 again, they're like baffled through the whole dinner feast, through the whole meal. Like, what? How is it that you're going to show yourself to us and not to the world? How can that even be possible? Because they're only thinking on a physical plane. And the master is getting them ready for this experience. Okay. Um, if you read... You know and remember that there were three feasts that are specified in Leviticus 23, and I believe it's on page 33 in your book if you want to go there, uh, that lays out, yes it is, the three feasts that God started Israel out to keep in 1444 B.C. So they kept these feasts for 1,475 years, every year, until Jesus came. 1,475 years. The first feast is what? Passover. The second feast? First fruits. The third feast? What uh, Gentiles call Passover. What Jews called Asip or the harvest feast. Okay, so we'll, we'll call it uh, Pentecost. Why is it called Pentecost? Pente, pentagram, five points, 50 days. This feast was to be 50 days after this feast. So Passover was the celebration of God delivering Egypt out of, uh, delivering Israel out of Egypt in slavery. First fruits was the celebration from the very first little harvest, the spring harvest of the vegetables that spring, come up in the spring, which were pointing to the full harvest, Asip, or Pentecost, was the feast of the full harvest. Also, in Old Testament history, this day was the day when Moses began to receive the law, the Torah, on Mount Sinai. Because they migrated out of Egypt went through the whole journey, got to Mount Sinai, and when they got there, that's when Moses began to receive the law. So this feast here is a double meaning. It has to do with God giving uh, revelation from heaven. It also has to do with God giving this huge harvest. And in an agricultural society, which we're not in anymore, you can imagine how important it would be if we don't have a decent spring. That is a harbinger that we may have a ho horrible fall. And if we have a horrible fall, there's no giant eagle to go to. So this is woven into the very texture of their life, these three feasts. Now when we get to the New Testament, look over in the right-hand column. What does Passover have to do with? Paul says Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed just like the lambs were if you remember the Jewish story when they killed a lamb and splattered the blood of the lamb on the doorpost 
and lintel of their doors. So, the symbolic meaning of that was that they got delivered from Egypt by the blood of a lamb. When Jesus comes, he gives his life for us, and so therefore they, oh, he fulfilled, and Jesus himself said that he fulfilled this feast. Well, then, first fruits, it's the first springing up out of the ground of new life, and Jesus and his apostles said he was going to fulfill that one too. How did he do it? Resurrection. He's the first one to come back to life in a new form, a resurrected body. He's the first fruits of the final resurrection of all people. So from this day forward, they were supposed to count off seven weeks, seven times seven, 49. And then on the 50th day, which turns out to be what in Jewish thought? Sunday, right? Because their Sabbath was Saturday. So seven Sabbaths plus one day. On the 50th day, they were supposed to celebrate this great cosmic feast of Pentecost, which was a celebration of, wow, God gave us the law, and God gave us a big harvest, so now we can live. Okay? So in the, when Jesus is standing, after he rose from the dead, how long was he with them? 40 days. So, he tells them right at the end, now, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem until you have this experience with the Holy Spirit that I've been, been talking about. It's going to happen in just a few days. How do you know that? Are you, I know. Pull the card out. Because well, he's Jesus and he's God. No! B, or A, because he knew the text. He knew he fulfilled this one. He knew he fulfilled this one. Plus, Jesus was a carpenter. That means what? He could count. One, two, three, four. So he knew that 40 days had already passed, and he said, okay, just in a few days, the 50th day, this, you're going to have this cosmic experience, which he also wrote, uh, rooted in Joel chapter 2, 28 through 30, in which God predicted that he was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. So when you look at this, is this accidental? Can this, this 1,475 years of this as a pattern, and then Jesus comes and boom, 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 he fulfills them all? No, I don't think so. I think it's one of the most convincing evidences that God really did inspire the scriptures and has a plan and a pattern and is working through human history. So, so what's so big about this day, though? This day. Jesus keeps, in John 14 through 16, he keeps saying, in that day, in that day, you will know, you'll understand. Later on, you'll understand, on that day. What happens on this day, Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes not just on them, but into them, and not just into them, but now begins to work in and through them. And on that day, the first Christian sermon was proclaimed by Peter. Uh, what was he doing, by the way, uh, just mm, about 50 days prior to that? Peter. Denying Jesus and hiding out in a little hole somewhere. Now, uh, what's the difference? 50 days ha passes, and now he's like, you know, Peter the apostle proclaiming Christ in the power of the Spirit. How many people believed in Jesus that day? Luke tells us. 3,000 Jewish people accepted Christ that day. And so he had an instant megachurch in Jerusalem. 
And then from that point on, God says this is now a new era of experience. Now I am going to live inside of you and work in and through you. Uh, and that's how we're going to get done the job that needs to be done. Now I'm going to stop right there and let you ask any questions that you want. Yes. Why did you call, or they call it the fall harvest when it's spring? I know there is a fall harvest. Yeah, it's fall for them. I, I, you know what? I was thinking about that when I read it again. I shouldn't have said that because I kind of misled people. Because misled people, what I'm doing is making a cultural equivalency without explaining it. This is like their Thanksgiving. This is their major harvest. There were a little harvests after that, but this is the big deal because they live in a different region of the world. So, um, you know, this is like uh, May, late May and early June, and that's when they have their biggest harvest. Because after that, it gets blisteringly hot in Israel, and you can't really, you know, have huge harvest anymore. So I shouldn't call it fall because it co coordinates to our culture, but having said it, yes, it's, a, it's the equivalency of fall. Yes. We are. No. Mm. <laughs> anyways, I'm pretty loud. But anyways, <laughs> you're not as loud. As you're okay. Sorry, but um, I, I don't know how to say it. I can't communicate to you. But you're <laughs> just saying what it was I was trying to say to you, and it's kind of an John 15 is intimate because it says we are like God. We are God. We are not like God. We are God because of Jesus Christ. Well, you're one with God. Yeah, okay, so one with God. You're actually, we're, we're actually not God. Right. We can't be God. Exactly. But, but we can... That's why I don't want to be like What is that? It's, it's me. <laughs> oh, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is important. This is really cool. Uh, we have a couple minutes, one minute, two minutes. So if you could turn over to Colossians chapter 3, you'll see what you're trying to say, I believe. And it would be in verses 9 through 10. And there Paul says that we are being renewed. And whoever's got a Bible there. We are being renewed into the image of the one who created us. Right? Well, now think back to the book of Genesis. What was the original definition of what a human being was? Entities made how? Uh, male and female. And what does God call these biological carbon-based life forms? He said, I've made you in, in the image of God. Okay, that image of God got mitigated, uh, modified, and sometimes even trashed to a certain extent when human beings became evil. So now, what the, the enterprise of God is, is that to take uh, fallen and broken people and to renew them into the image of God that we were destined to share and be in. And this process of the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us is the dynamic, the reality, the, the power that enables us to become fully human, to become fully what God intended us to be, which is image bearers of God. So we're not God, but we should be, if everything goes well, we should become what? 
like God, as God. In other words, you should be able to look at a human being that's completely allowing Christ to live in and through them, and you should be able to say, that's, that's sort of like what God is like. You see that love, you see that peace, you see that kindness. Yes, John. Um, I, just kind of, I, I was just wondering, if God is omnipotent, all power, is being like God to selflessly use power? I mean, God is all powerful, but he gives himself for us. Um, who of us uses power to benefit others primarily. Well, I, one of the cha chapters in here I have titled is Returning to God as Power. And your point is really good. When they talked about power, when the Christians did, they weren't talking about tyranny over others or ruling over others. They were talking about power that enabled them to serve others. And they looked to Jesus as the classic example. God is power, raising Jesus from the dead and giving life to people. That's what they considered power. Giving life, not, not dominating. So, so you wonder, why is Christianity viewed as a threat in so much of the world? If, if we truly were not seeking power, how would we be threatening to anybody? That's a great question. I mean, it really is. And, you know, you're a historian, so you know. We've got 2,000 years of church history. And, and what is amazing to me is... Here the disciples are walking with the master. They're walking to Jerusalem. They're walking to his crucifixion. And they get into a rip-snorting argument on the way. And does anyone remember what the argument is about? <clears throat> Who's going to have the seat of honor when the master comes into his kingdom? Who's going to sit on his right hand and on his left hand and be the visible uh, expression of Messiah's power? In fact... It's a funny story, because there's all this, always this stuff about Jewish mothers, right? Uh, jokes about Jewish mothers. It's a Jewish mother who actually introduces the topic and says, hey, I got a great idea. My two sons, one could sit on your right hand and one could sit on the left when you come into your kingdom. It's so cute. It's so funny. <laughs> and... What, what can we say, John, is that when these people are within visible proximity of the master, they can see him, and what they're thinking about is when he comes into power, we want to be there with him. And so if they got it confused, it's no doubt that the rest of us down through the ages at times have got it confused, but it's like everything else in the Christian faith. God takes these ideas and then, boom, turns them on their head, and it winds up to be an upside-down kingdom. So are you saying we should all run for president <laughs> together, and when we're elected, the first thing we'll do, disband the military, <laughs> no, disband the military, give up all power to the rest of the world. Now, I, I, yes, I'm I think intending a more practical, to be silly. A more practical solution would be to go buy a pan and a towel and go around and wash people's feet. Wow. Now, find the cultural equivalency to washing feet, whatever that is in our era, and do that. That, that would be what Christ would do. Okay, um, you guys have to go, so thanks for coming. God bless you. Have a great week. See you next week.